This is episode 469 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. In the history of the church, there seems to always be confusion about the Lord's Supper. What does it mean? Why do we participate? And what happens when I do? I mean, let's be honest, many find the Lord's Supper somewhat confusing. I often hear people say, I don't understand what the Lord's Supper means. And in our narcissistic church culture, where it's all about us, this is usually followed by, so what's the point of the Lord's Supper anyway? We know it's something important, really important, but we're not sure why. And we know it's something we're supposed to do because Jesus commanded us to, but again, we're not sure why which even presents more questions. What does it mean? Is it really that important? Why should I participate? Are there any reasons why I should not participate? What happens when I do participate? And why all the controversy and confusion? Sometimes the Lord's Supper is called communion. But communion with who? And how is that communion experienced by taking a sip of juice and eating a bit of unleavened dough ball? In other words, there must be more to this than what many believers have experienced. And there is. And today, we're going to show you exactly what that is. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. We have been in 2 Chronicles 7.14, and I'm going to close that up today by just going through the passages one more time and emphasizing some various implications of the words. The verse says this, if my people who are called by my name, we've gone over several times what that means, will humble themselves, not be humbled, but humble themselves, and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways that we talked about last week, then, it's an if-then passage, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Every week that we come together on Sunday has been another week of decadence in our nation. Things even get crazier week after week after week. And so the, the key to this passage is not something God does, it's something that we do, that you do, that I do personally. I am to humble myself. I'm to recognize who God is and who I am. I have got to have the responsibility to pray. I have to be the one that seeks his face. I can't let my husband do it, my wife do it, my kids do it, the pastor do it, some spiritual leader do it. I have to do it. Then I have to recognize in my life things are offensive to him, and I have to turn from my wicked ways. And if I do all of that, then he promises to hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. So how do we get to a point as individuals and as a congregation where we make that commitment, we make that consecration? Throughout history, there have been these statements that are made, and you can kind of accept them or not, and then all of a sudden when somebody makes it a situation where you have to choose, then people consider what's going on in their life, and they choose. We talked about this on Wednesday night with the men, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus just makes a statement. Hey, by the way, guys, who do the people say that I am? Well, some say Jeremiah, some one of the prophets, some say John the Baptist raised from the dead. You know, they're saying a lot of things. They never even said one time that you're the Messiah. And then Jesus said, well, now it's time to choose. It's no longer them out there. If my people, everybody else but us, now it's who do you say that I am? Now we must choose. I'm always enamored with what happened in the Alamo when uh, Colonel Travis drew the line in the sand. 173 men crossed over that line, knowing that by crossing over that line that they would die. And it was okay because the cause was greater than them. If there was no line, people could have filtered out or stayed in, or there was no real point-blank personal responsibility. So we're coming to the Lord's Supper And it's a marvelous time for us to consecrate our lives to whether we want to serve him with reckless abandon or not, whether we want to move out of the lukewarmness of Laodicea or not, whether we want our lives to be different in these tough times that we're facing right now or not, and it's really up to you. It's not up to us, it's up to you. 
I can't do it for Karen and she can't do it for me. She could wish she could or I could wish she could, but we can't. You must make the commitment to follow him with reckless abandon yourself. And so before we partake of the Lord's Supper, I want to just basically ask a couple questions. And I haven't done this in years and years and years, and there's so much confusion about the Lord's Supper that we're just going to cover these basic questions first, and then I want to talk a little bit more about what the Lord's Supper meant to the disciples. I mean, what does it mean? Why do we even do it? Is it even important? And if it's not important, why should I even participate? What do I get out of it? We all live in a narcissistic society, and every time we look at stuff in Scripture about being filled with the Holy Spirit or surrendering your life to Christ, the question is always, what do I get out of it? When I was growing up, the Lord's Supper was just an excuse not to listen to another sermon. And I remember it was in military fashion. Those of you that grew up in Southern Baptist churches, it was military fashion. The deacons would march down the aisle. My dad, of course, was chairman of the deacons. And they would file off in in two areas. And my dad would coach me, how did you guys know to all sit together at the same time? Well, we would put side glances at each other. And the guy on the end of the pew would just tug on his trousers a little bit. And when he tugged on his trousers, everybody knew they were sitting down. Oh, that really pleases God when we do it that way. And then the the chairman of the deacons would stand up on one side of the communion table and the pastor or another, maybe another deacon would, and they would fold the cloth like it was a flag on the grave of a veteran. You know, they'd fold it and set it aside. And then the pastor, or they would come and they would serve the the congregation and they would sit down and the pastor would come and serve them. and, And every time he served them, he would give that little pastoral nod. You know, it somehow communicates some sort of, do you remember that? And we would hold the cups and try not to spill it until the pastor would say, you know, drink ye all of it. And then we would drink it and put it in those little wooden cup holder things at the end of the pew. Do you remember that? Some of you who come from different backgrounds, a Lutheran background or a Catholic background or, or something of that nature, you had your own traditions. But it was lost. I mean, why are we doing this? Well, because we're trying to somehow connect with the death and burial and resurrection and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, but I ain't connected. I, I, I'm eating this little unleavened dough ball, and I'm drinking grape juice because wine, of course, is out of vogue today in many denominations. And, and so, okay, I'm not, I, I, I'm not getting it. And some churches do it every day or every Sunday. Some churches do it once a quarter. We do it, we try to do it once a month, and we miss the point. I mean, why should I even participate? And you know what? What if I don't want to participate? Are there any reasons why I shouldn't participate? And if I do participate, how is this communion? How am I communing with anybody? Am I communing with my wife or my kids or the people sitting around me? Am I communing with the Holy Spirit? Am I somehow communing with Christ? I mean, how does this even work? And why is there so much controversy and so much confusion about just this thing that we do occasionally as a church. I don't want today to be like it's always been. I want today it to be different. I I want today for you to experience something of what it must have been like to be with Jesus up in the upper room and what it meant for him and what the true meaning is behind this thing that we do called the Lord's Supper. First of all, what does it mean? It's really simple. It is a joint proclamation of the death of Christ. We talk about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that we proclaim his death till he comes and the pouring out of his blood until he comes. Now, here's the question you have to ask yourself. So what? Okay, I proclaim his death. What does that mean? Jesus died. Hey, Jesus died and he shed his blood. So, so what am I doing? What, what does that even mean? Why, why is that, that even important? But if the shedding of Christ's blood that bought your salvation, that covered the sins that you're committing and I'm committing right now, that put us at a right standing with God, if that act of Christ is not something to breed humbleness in you and gratefulness in you, then the problem we have as a church, and not just this church, but the church in general, is far greater than that. 
We can take the Lord's Supper and walk right out and do everything we did prior to taking the Lord's Supper, and it has no impact on our life at all. But this is something that we do together. This is something that we jointly do. And one of the things that we practice, not all the time, but we try to take the social pressure away. Social pressure is the fact that there's somebody standing at this aisle and somebody standing at this aisle, and Tim has a right relationship with the Lord and Debbie doesn't, and the plate goes to Tim and he takes one and hands it to his wife, and she really doesn't want to take it, but she does anyway because she doesn't want everybody to know that she's not in the right place with the Lord. And so what we do is by social pressure sometimes drink condemnation on ourselves. So what we try to do is take that out by making it very personal. You can come up or you can stay in your seat. You can do whatever you want because this is not about us. This is about you and him. It is our participation in the benefits of Christ's death. I'm amazed as I read this that Jesus gave thanks before he broke the bread. Lord, this bread is my body broken, tormented, lacerated, pierced, punctured for you. And I'm giving thanks that that could happen. That's the kind of love he has for us. It affirms the unity of all believers because that we're doing this together. It affirms his love for me by breaking his body and shedding his blood. It should affirm my love for him and especially my faith in him as spiritually through faith i am communing with him by this sacrament or for non catholic episcopalians lutherans from from this ordinance that we participate in so what i mean come on i sing some songs and sometimes i don't and sometimes i do and okay and we listen to the preaching isn't that enough I occasionally read my Bible, so why should I participate in this? I mean, why is it so important? First of all, I don't really like to get out of my seat because it seems kind of awkward. And then when I get this, this little bitty quarter ounce of grape juice and this piece of bread and I drink, I don't know what to do with the cups. I mean, it just seems awkward to me. And so, well, why should I even do this? Why is it even important? Wasn't this some sort of Jewish custom? Yeah. But look what Jesus said before he initiated at his last Passover, this Lord's Supper. He said to him, now watch the strange construction of this sentence. It's almost like it's untranslatable properly in English. Nobody talks this way. But in order to communicate the passion behind it, this is the way it has to be written. With fervent desire, I have desired. Nobody talks like that. It's like we're trying so hard to try to communicate what he was feeling from the Greek. I can't tell you. It's beyond words. With fervent desire, I've wanted, I've desired. This has been the, the pinnacle of my life right now, my last time together with you. It takes up six chapters in the Gospel of John. This is the end of it all. It's right now in front of us with fervent desire. I have desired to eat this Passover with you, what? Before I take on the new church, before I win the lottery, before I get exalted by humanity, before I suffer. And they didn't even catch on to that word suffering. For I say to you, it's this important that I won't do this again until we can do it together in the kingdom of God. This this is so important to me that doing it with you is so important that I won't of my own free will in heaven with my father and the angels, I will not do this again until we can do it together. It's like like somebody getting deployed overseas for military reasons on on December 20th. I'm going to miss Christmas. I'm going to miss Christmas with my kids. I'm going to miss Christmas with you. Yes, but you know what? We're not going to celebrate Christmas. We're not going to celebrate Christmas until you come back, until you can celebrate it with us. And when you do celebrate that with us, it will be fantastic. We're willing to forego something that's pleasurable for us so we can share it with you. This is exactly what the Lord is saying. What love that is. 
So if it's really all that important, I mean, why should I participate? I mean, what's in it for me? Narcissism 101 in the Christian church. What's in it for me? Again, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now, right now, right now, until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That one of the reasons why we should participate is because Christ Christ says, as this memorial that we're taking to him, that I, it's so important to me to share it with you. It's so important for me to commune with you. It's so important for me that I am not going to do this. And he celebrated the Passover every year of his entire life. The Jews celebrated it for millenniums. I am still celebrated. I am not going to celebrate that until I can do it with you. Oh, I don't care. Just do it without me. It's not that big a deal. I'm just tired. I don't feel like doing it. I don't want to do it. I mean, how could we even speak that way about him? It's that important. Plus, there's this. As often as you eat this bread, here it doesn't tell us how often to do it. He leaves that up to the church. Some people do it every time they get together. Some people do it monthly or quarterly or however. It doesn't matter. But how often you do it, Paul says, you eat this bread and drink this cup. What we are doing is proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. What, like death like uh, the Mel Gibson movie, Passion of the Christ, all the horrific suffering? Yeah, but that's not the end of it. That's the flesh side of it. The reason why he died is for you and I to have a right relationship with him, to pay the penalties of our sin, that when we sin or blow him off or want nothing to do with him, it's almost like his suffering and his blood was for nothing. But when we come together and partake of this this ordinance, or again, sacrament, that what we're doing is we're proclaiming the benefits of everything he provided for us until he comes. Well, are there any reasons why I shouldn't participate? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there are. And they have nothing to do with church membership. They have nothing to do with an open communion and a closed communion. An open communion means that anybody can have communion in a particular church. A closed communion says, no, you have to be a bona fide member of this church. And if you're a visitor or somebody who hasn't actually joined, you just sit there empty-handed. We're not talking about that kind of man-made rules. What we're talking about here is what the Bible says. There are certain reasons why you should not participate. And I would be remiss and negligent in my duty as a pastor not to tell you about these. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Whoever therefore eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, in a manner that maligns what Christ has performed. Uh, If you want to make it very easy to understand, someone who is in the middle of overt sin and refuses to repent and change, someone who stamps on the sacrifice of Christ, someone who puts something else in front of his relationship with Jesus, some sort of idolatry, some sort of desire for the things of this world, somebody who has not allowed Jesus to be Lord of your life, but instead has kicked him to the curb and you or something else is sitting there, something he will convict you about in the self-examination process. You will either listen to that and repent, or you will not repent and harden your heart. And if you don't repent and harden your heart, what Paul tells us here is don't take the Lord's Supper. Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Wow, that's kind of scary for those who take the Scripture seriously. So what are we to do? He tells us, but let a man examine himself and let him so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself. Why? In what way? Not discerning, and this word means denoting separation, the the Lord's body. Now, here's the question. We have read this, and I I don't want to take the time to go back in, in the early part of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and talk about when Paul is laying out for, for them the, the proper way of doing the Lord's Supper is because prior to that, they were just 
trashing everybody. They were bringing their own food, and if, if you were dressed nice, you got to take the Lord's Supper first, because if you dressed bad, you didn't get to take it, because no one wants to drink behind someone who, who isn't dressed as nice as we are. And there was a division that took place. They had a fellowship meal afterwards. Kind of, they called it a, an agape feast. And those people who brought food ate first, and those people who didn't didn't get to eat at all. And this Lord's Supper began dividing the body of Christ. It's designed for unity. That's why we do it together. And so when it talks about the Lord's body, it's not talking about his physical body, that we are not discerning his physical body, but we are discerning the unity in the body of Christ. And here's the warning. For this reason, many, not just a few, one or two people, but many are weak, and many among you are sick, and many among you have died because God's judgment was on them, especially the church of Corinth, because God wanted unity in the Lord's Supper. Okay. So what happens if I do participate? And I participate in the proper attitude and the proper way, and I've self-examined myself, and I've confessed my sins, and I promise not to the Lord to, to make those changes and, and whatever he's called me to do, I just want to be totally his. I mean, how do I commune with him? How am I experiencing him? What is this designed to do? And here's what happens when you participate properly, and then I'll tell you why. When we do, we, we experience continued fellowship with the Lord, and we remember not only a time, but an event that is of great importance to him, like we celebrate an anniversary or a birthday. We do this in our own life. We have a particular time or a particular event, and that event was momentous in our life, and we make a decision every year or whenever it is to celebrate the birth of our child. Our people want to celebrate our birth, or I celebrate my anniversary. And if I forget to celebrate my anniversary, then my wife is like, I'm kind of offended at that, kind of hurt at that, because that day wasn't important to you. And so when we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is we're celebrating something that for him was of profound importance. I earnestly desire to desire with fervent desire to celebrate this with you before I suffer. And he offers us an invitation, a fellowship. And that's what it means. It's almost like we're going to the Lord's table and he hands us bread, and he hands us wine, and he tells us to dine with him, sup with him, have fellowship with him. And that's more than just coming up here and, and taking it and going back and slopping it down or waiting till the tray comes by and looking at everybody else. Oh, that person took it. Well, I might as well take it too. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a true communion with him. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are partaking of Christ himself. Because as he says in John 6, 51, he is the living bread which came down from heaven. So let's deal with the tough issues here. Let's deal with Jesus saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. The early Romans accused them of being cannibals because they heard them talking like this. They didn't really know what was going on because Jesus made some really rough statements here. In John 6, 51 and 52, here's what he says. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. Not like manna, but I am the living bread. He also said I am the door. He also said that I am the gate. He also said that I am the shepherd. He said a lot of things. I, that's, that's who I am. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats, this word east is, eats is in the aorist term of the word. I'll explain that to you in just a moment. If anyone eats of this bread, which he said he was, he will live forever. And so, yeah, the enemies of Christ is going like, what, are you supposed to eat of his body? I mean, it's like cannibalism. It's like zombie stuff. And the bread that I shall give, just so that you'll not be confused, is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. We understand what that means when he sacrificed his flesh for us. The Jews, therefore, quarreled among themselves, saying, how is this man to give us his flesh to eat? Don't really understand what he's saying. Jesus continues. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat in the aorist tense, 
the flesh of the Son of Man and drink, Aristens, his blood, you shall have no life in you. Whoever eats, Aristens, my flesh, and drinks, Arist, my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise him up the last days. Are you talking metaphorically? Well, just so you'll not be confused here. My flesh is food indeed. It is. And my blood is drink indeed. And who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. The various terms to Greek words. The aorist terms is something that is not a present tense term or a future prince uh, tense term. It is not something that happens today or tomorrow. An aorist tense is something that has happened in the past one time, but still has continuing ramifications today. At some point in time in your life, you fed on Christ. You recognized him as the bread of life. And you took that bread inside of yourself. You ate that bread and you abide in him and he in you. It's talking about a salvation experience here. It's not talking about a continual eating of the bread of Christ in order to secure your salvation forever. And if you read that passage, there are four promises. One is negative and three are positive. First, negative. Those who reject Jesus have no life in themselves. Positive. Those who partake to eat and drink of him have eternal life. And if you have eternal life, he will raise you up on the last days and there will be fellowship and union with Christ as he abides, rests, dwells, makes his home in you and you in him. This is like almost a requirement to understand John 15 where it talks about the vine and the branches, resting and abiding and being nourished by him. If you're a branch connected to a vine bearing fruit that comes from the, from the vine and not the branch, all your substance, everything that you have, everything that brings you nutrients and brings you stability comes from something outside of yourself, which is the vine, and the vine is Christ. So why the confusion? Why is everybody so messed up about this? And because they are, we as Protestants, as many former Baptists are still Baptists, we have a tendency of just trying to table the issue and blowing it off because it's just too confusing to even manage. Because there's so many different ways of viewing this. And it all boils down to this. This is Matthew 26, 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread... Let me actually get a piece of bread here. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, much larger loaf than this, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Okay. Well, I know it's not because your body is actually giving it to me. But the question always, the controversy always comes with what does Christ mean when he says is? For those of you a little my age, maybe a little bit younger, the whole issue of is was something really big with Bill Clinton. Do you remember? How do you define that word is? This is exactly what causes the controversy in Christian circles. How does this somehow he could become Christ's body. Is it Christ's body? Is Christ's body somehow infused with that? Is it just spiritual or a memorial? How does that happen? When Luther struggled with this, he kept reciting over and over again in his mind, Hocus corpus meum, which, by the way, means this is my body. And he would recite that over and over and over again in his mind, Hocus uh, corpus meum. By the way, this is where we get the phrase hocus pocus, which means something to come from nothing, that somehow bread would turn into something totally different than bread, and it was from this Latin phrase that we've coined kind of the slang term hocus pocus. How does that work? How is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? How do we truly commune with him? You have the Catholic view. And the Catholic view is one of called transubstantiation. The Catholic view believes that this particular piece of bread somehow 
physically, physically turns into a hunk of flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. That when I, that the priest holds it, and when he places the wafer on my tongue, that somehow, even though it's in my mouth and it doesn't taste like flesh, it actually tastes like a wafer, he places it in my mouth, but somehow in order for this to become the physical body of the Lord Jesus Christ, it has to change. When I drink of the the chalice or the goblet or, or, or the cup that once it touches my lips, because only the priest can do that because the priest blesses it and you know the priest helps this transformation, this hocus pocus take place, that all of a sudden then it becomes the actual blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some serious problems with that. Serious problem is the fact that we have a tendency of worshiping the elements. Many times in a Catholic church, in a Catholic mass, they will hold up the elements, giving homage to the cup and the wine and giving homage to the bread, and that's not giving homage to Christ. Plus, anybody who has participated in a mass knows it's heavy on religion, and you come and you kneel and the priest comes and he takes the wafer and he places it on your tongue, and as you let that wafer dissolve or chew it up and swallow it, you know that's not flesh. It's not. It's a wafer. So when the Reformation rolled around, they realized that, you know, this isn't, this isn't working. This is not really true. And because it elevates again, almost to the point of idolatry, the elements of the Lord's Supper rather than the Lord's Supper itself. So the reformers, and again, the reformers are split on this. You had Luther and Calvin, and we know them as the great reformers because they wrote so much. But then you had a a scholar by the name of Zwingli. Anybody ever heard of him? Zwingli, who didn't write as much. He's not that well known, but he was more in the conservative view of the of the Reformation. And so these three men got in a heated discussion, usually by print, about really what happens. How is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? Luther came up with something called consubstantiation. And what Luther says is, I don't want to view this as not being the the actual body and blood of of the Lord Jesus, because that will kind of downplay some of the religion, because even in Lutheran churches, they're more sacrimonial than than like a Baptist church would be. So therefore, even though we reject transubstantiation, that this actually somehow magically turns into the physical body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we believe that somehow it's in or under or through or somehow it's his, his body and blood is in this wafer, although the wafer itself doesn't actually physically turn into that. Zwingli says, no, doesn't make any sense. And that they kind of defies logic. Calvin's kind of caught between the two, and they spent, you know, two generations writing about all of this. And, and they were the, the Lutherans have one view, and, you know, the Calvinists kind of had the same view. And, and from a reform standard, all of a sudden, this third view developed. And the third view is what's called the memorialist view. And it's simply this that when Jesus said, I am the door, he wasn't a physical door. And if he says, anyone like the sheepfold, you know, anyone enters through me that they can have eternal life. Okay, so where's the handle, Lord? You're standing in front of me. Do I turn the handle? Do I walk inside your chest cavity? I mean, how am I supposed to work that out? We know that's not true. We know that Jesus was speaking metaphorically. And so that I signify a door. I represent the door. No one comes to the Father except through this door. And so the idea is that this becomes a memorial or symbolic of the Lord Jesus Christ. That when I place this on my tongue, after I have prayed properly, that in some sort of way that we really don't understand, I have communion with the Lord, even though I don't have to be eating his physical flesh or drinking his type A or whatever type blood he had. Make sense? And then there are other views. There are some churches that even border on cultish things that that say, for example, if you don't take the Lord's Supper, you can't be saved, and, and they make it something much bigger than it is. But the issue, listen very carefully, theologically the issue is how is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? But practically speaking, what we're going to do today, that's not the issue. The real issue is 
How is he present in you? What is Christ doing in your life? What are you about to experience with him? In the Westminster Shorter Catechism in the 1600s, catechisms are something that have fallen out of vogue with us, and that's why we and our children are so spiritually illiterate. Back during the day, when Christianity was of prime importance to people during the time, you would memorize catechisms. And catechisms are pretty much a question and an answer, and a question and an answer, and a question and an answer. You had a shorter catechism and a longer catechism, and they would come together and put these doctrinal statements together that we don't care about, because if you go on a church website today, and the, you know, when, you op- when you open up the website, is the first thing you see is a praise band, and that picture f- floats off, and then you see the coffee bar, and that picture floats off. There's kids in the nursery, and that picture floats away, and then we're back to the praise band again, you will find that their statement of faith will be something like, we love God and we love you. That isn't exactly how it works, but that's kind of what we want today. In the shorter catechism that kids would have to memorize by the time they were 12, question 96 is about the Lord's Supper. And the question is this, what is the Lord's Supper? I could ask every one of you this question, and most of us could not give a really good answer. That's the thing we do when we come up and we drink the the grape juice and then the piece of bread, and we kind of sit down in our seat, and then we have a big fellowship meal. Why does we're celebrating, I don't know, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why? Because he told us to do it in, in the Bible, and so we kind of do it. Do you commune with him? Do... Does, 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 how does eating this actually have you commune with him? And we have a hard time even articulating something as simple, or as, I won't say as simple, as important as the Lord's Supper. Here is the answer, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament. We would call it an ordinance. Wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine... According to Christ's appointment, because he's the one that directed us to do that, his death is showed forth. And the worthy receivers are, not after a corporal and carnal manner, just coming and doing it and eating and all that kind of stuff, but by faith, made partakers of his body and blood with all his benefits, and here's the reason, to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. Well, that doesn't make any sense. I I partake of the Lord's Supper and I don't feel any spiritual. I know. And if you fast and you don't have a right attitude about that, all you feel is hungry. Maybe I'll lose a couple pounds and that's the only benefit I get. But nevertheless, in these spiritual disciplines, God promises benefits if we take them seriously. And I can't think with our culture unraveling right now, a better time to start taking them seriously than now. Do you know what our church teaches and believes about the Lord's Supper? Anybody read it? It's been up for 22 years. Here is from our statement of faith about the Lord's Supper. We teach that the Lord's Supper is the commemoration and proclamation of his death until he comes and should always be preceded by solemn self-examination. I've already read those verses to you. And if you have questions about this, there's the verses. We also teach is whereas the elements of communion, the bread here and the grape juice, are only representative of the flesh and blood of Christ. In other words, it's a memorialist view. This doesn't become his chunk of his forearm. The Lord's Supper is nevertheless an actual communion with the risen Christ, who is present in a unique spiritual way that is hard to understand like he is present when you fast, fellowshipping with his people and giving us benefit and spiritual nourishment when we do this. Make sense? Okay. On Wednesday night, I began the process of trying to teach the men how to experience God's word. And we looked at a couple passages, and they are to find some passages this week. This is a heads up in case you guys forgot to try to experience his word in the same way we talked about on Wednesday. We're going to continue talking about that on Wednesday, but I want you to do the same thing between now and then. In other words, next 
Um, next Sunday, we're going to be looking at these verses that deal with the Lord's Supper. We're going to look at the passage in Matthew chapter 26. We're going to read those passages. We're going to figure out exactly what's happening. We're going to place ourselves into that event. What if I was there observing in the upper room? We're only going to be looking at the dialogue that takes place, but we're also going to be trying to experience some of the black print. Then we're going to go over and see the same account in Mark. Can I learn anything else? Is there anything more to learn in Mark? And then we're going to look at the passage in Luke. As a matter of fact, Matthew talks about sending some of his disciples out to go meet a man who's carrying a pitcher of water. Well, that's strange because that was a woman's job back then, so he's probably pretty easy to figure out who he was. And so when he's carrying a pitcher of water, I have to go up to him and say, hey, the master needs to use your home. Follow him to where he is, and you'll find that uh, that home is already prepared for the Lord's Supper. By the time we get to Mark, we find out that it wasn't all the disciples that went. It was just two of them, and Luke tells us what two it was. And so by beginning to add more to this, we begin to experience. Matthew, Mark, and Luke lay out for us the Lord's Supper. John tells us that prior to any of this, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't include that. John does. And one of the people whom Jesus washed their feet was Judas, who he knew was going to betray him, and let looked up in Judas's face as he was washing his feet, humbling himself to the point of being a bond slave. You don't realize what I have done for you, he says, but soon you will. And then, of course, there's the First Corinthians passage, what Paul uses, which most of us use today to try to explain the Lord's Supper and how it, how it flows and how it's to be administered in church. Not going to be looking at these verses today. We're going to be looking at these next week. And I want you to read these. I want you to try to experience what it must have been like. I want you to imagine sitting at this table, a big U-shaped table. Jesus is in the center. We know John is on this side. We know Judas is on this side, which is the place of honor. And so John leans, because everybody's leaning this way, eating with their right hand. John leans on Jesus' breast, looks up in his face and says, Lord, which one is it that betrays you? Jesus tells John, nobody else is listening, tells John and says, the one whom I dip, the, dip it in the, the bitter herbs and give to, and he turns around and does that and hands it to Judas. Judas and him have a, have a discussion. He tells Judas, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. Judas gets up and leaves. This is after all the disciples have said, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Imagine, imagine the look on Christ's face. Imagine what it must have felt like to, to be there when it happened. I want you to read these passages. I want you to try to experience God's word in a way you never had before. We'll go over this next week. But today, all I want to do is look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So if you would, turn with me there, and let's partake of the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. To understand that where it talks about being guilty of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, to understand that you'll need to begin at verse number 17 and see the reason why Paul is giving these instructions. And here's what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. Now, in giving these instructions to you, I do not praise you. For since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse, the point is unity in the body. First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. In other words, I understand there's divisions between lost and saved, but there should, because that's just natural, but there should not be divisions between saved and saved. Therefore, verse 20, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Well, yeah, it is. That's what, that's what we're doing. We're coming together to eat the Lord's Supper, and then we're coming together to have a fellowship agape meal afterwards. No, you think it is, but it's not. Verse 21, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? 
Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Are you to despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in these things? I do not praise you. That's the context here. And then he gives this warning about how the Lord's Supper is supposed to be taken. For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember me. Remember me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. Well, that's a clue. There were four cups during the Passover meal. There were two before the meal, then there was the meal, and there were two after. And each of those cups had a name, and each of those cups symbolized God working with his people. And the cup after supper, the third cup, which he inaugurated this lasting memorial to his death, is called the cup of atonement or the cup of repentance. And he took the cup after supper saying, this cup, not the cup before or the cup after, but this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim what I have done for you, my eternal sacrifice for you. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Then I can imagine Paul, if he was giving this instruction live, looks up at those people who are causing the visions, those people that are first in line. I want to get my food before everybody else gets it because, you know, I brought the better meal and everybody else just brought nothing. And those people back there, they couldn't afford to bring anything. So you're in the back of the line because it's all about a pecking order. And he says this in verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So let a man examine himself. Is my heart pure? Am I at peace with other people? Are there people I need to forgive? And if I do forgive them, is God prompting me to go ask for their forgiveness? Or am I too prideful to do that? Are there overt sins in my life that I'm I'm continuing doing because everybody else does and it's just the way it is? And God is convicting me about those. I recognize my relationship with him is strained, that I have grieved the Holy Spirit, yet I refuse to correct those. Those are unworthy manners. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drink in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the unity of the separation of the Lord's body. And for this reason, God's hand of blessing and his hand of cursing is on that church. Many, not just a few, but many are weak and many are sick among you and many sleep, which is Paul's way of saying have died. And so in just a moment, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And what I'm asking you to do is pray and confess your sins and have a a short account with the Lord and then come and accept his invitation to dine with him. Well, I, I believe in consubstantiation. Well, I believe in transubstantiation. I have a more memorialist view. I don't really care. or I don't have any view. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The point of this is for you to come and fellowship with him. I want you to imagine that Jesus has poured the drink and he's laid out the bread and he's invited you to dine with him at the wedding feast of him, of God's son, as maybe the bride. And so you're coming and he's presenting to you, come and have fellowship with me. This bread, when I partake of it, represents the shed, tattered, tortured filleted open body of the Lord Jesus Christ and the excruciating pain that he went through to provide the atonement for your sins, the same sins we should be confessing to him right now. And when I partake of that, I am thanking him, 
thanking him for his sacrifice, not making light of his sacrifice, vowing to him because of what he's done, the benefits of the death of Christ, that I will live my life to the best of my ability, yielding to the Holy Spirit for his glory. Kind of a recommitment time with him, consecrating ourselves as we see our world beginning to implode. And when I drink the juice, it represents the blood of Christ, that precious blood, the most valuable element in all the universe, the only blood that can blot out my sins that are nailed to the cross, that when Christ or when God the Father sees me, he doesn't see me, he sees his Son who's paid for my sins by the shedding of his blood. And the Lord invites us to share in that with him. A time of sacrifice, a time of commitment, a time of of consecration, more importantly, a time of communion. And so I'm going to pray. You have 1 Corinthians 11 open in front of you in your lap. You can read these passages yourself. You can eat of the bread and drink of the juice, the fruit of the vine, yourself. If you choose not to participate, that is perfectly fine. I will, I honor you for your commitment and your honesty. If you choose to participate, I want you to take as long as you need to, to get right with God, to pray with him. We have a meal afterwards, so we're in no rush to leave. And after everybody's had an opportunity that would like you to participate, I will come up and close. But let's try in the way he has designed to experience him today. Amen? Let me pray. Father, we come today to, Lord, to commune with you, to do it according to how you have prescribed for us to do it. You wouldn't have chosen this way unless there's something that happens supernaturally that connects us to you, to your body and your blood in a way that doesn't happen by just drinking wine and eating bread. That somehow, Lord, in a way that we can't understand, spiritually we are nourished, we are encouraged, we are committed to be more about you. Father, would you let us put everything aside? Let us just focus on this time with you, us and you, just the two of us. And would you let us experience you just in a fresh way that maybe we haven't in a long time. Lord, would you be honored? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So come whenever you're ready.